Hello, everyone. This is Jay Alejandro with the Creative Drive Podcast. I'd like to welcome you to the program, a showcase of poetry and flash fiction by writers from all walks of life. Today, we feature the work of Eugene H. Davis. And we'd like to share a few words written by the author. One thing was constant for me when, as a boy, I spent my New England summers lazing on the back porch, ignoring the allure of the nearby beach and the call of friends to devour the works of my favorite authors. I was determined to become a writer. I know, cliché, cliché, but clichés are often life's first drafts, overwritten by struggle and accomplishment. Nothing else would satisfy. No doubt I was being romantic, corrupted by the very books I loved. Still, I dreamed of living the rough-and-tumble life I'd only read about in the books of authors I admired, like London, Hemingway, Kerouac, and later Balzac, Henry Miller, and Mailer, and travel the world gathering experience for my own novels. I've been writing through all the phases of my life, during good times and bad, in times of celebration and sorrow, marriage, births, deaths, and, of course, the inevitable rejection by publishers and agents. The bulk of my writing is now contained in ink-engorged journals, which I began in my 20s. Some 30 notebooks in all. They've served as compost for the five screenplays, two novels, my MA graduate thesis, and my debut novel, My Wife's Husband. A dozen published short stories, and a handful of essays, memoirs, film reviews, and occasional poems I've committed to ink. As the saying goes, art is long and life is short. I am grateful, still, to be building my castles in the sky and telling the stories that come from life keenly observed and cherished. Baked Ziti by E. H. Davis I had come to the big city to serve an apprenticeship in life and fill the void of experience I lacked so that I might have something to write about. I was ready to suffer for my art but not too much. Little did I know the depths to which I would sink. My initiation came at gunpoint soon after I arrived. Afterwards, I took to strapping a Jim Bowie knife to my hip and picking my teeth with it whenever I felt someone showing an unhealthy interest in my wallet. A Sign of the Times David Berkowitz, infamous as Son of Sam, the Satanist serial killer, was being held at Kings County Mental Hospital in the Brooklyn hinterland where he was undergoing evaluation. I happened to be waiting for an elevator to take me to my therapist on the third floor when the doors opened and there he was, in handcuffs and blue hospital gown, open at the back, being escorted by an attendant and a cop to another part of the hospital. Our eyes clicked for a moment before I forced myself to look away. Was I wrong to think he looked normal? It was the 70s and British punk had arrived. Sid and Nancy were holding court at the Hotel Chelsea, a veritable bazaar for druggies and posers. In Room 100, the star-crossed lovers would self-immolate in a haze of heroin and punk rocker angst. Months later, when I was homeless, a pal on the front desk let me crash there, in their very same room. I looked, trust me, but could find no lingering tang of death. Only blocks away on 28th, between the Avenue of the Americas and Broadway, a bleach blonde from Jersey named Deborah Harry could be seen performing in a neighborhood bar, Bows, in Tin Pan Alley, 
rocking from tabletops rigged as a makeshift stage. Meanwhile, working stiffs from the flower district quaffed their boilermakers, rubbing elbows with Debbie's East Village crowd, drag queens, and diamond-studded dogs and their concubines. Debbie had yet to meet Chris Stein and find her apotheosis as Blondie. And I, an earnest twenty-something with literary aspirations and a yet-to-be-discovered taste for the dark side, for Jezebel's in-black mesh tops, torn tights and vinyl minis, Medusa hair glistening, swaying to the hypnotic thunder of Johnny Thunder's heroine music in the after-hour clubs I was drawn to. I was just finding out just what tricks fate had in store for me. Having impulsively severed ties with my parents to test my mettle, I arrived in New York with $50 in my pocket and a suitcase of manuscripts I was convinced would be my ticket to fame and fortune. My ride, a tatty two-tone turquoise 67 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, inherited from Dad, served as my sleeping quarters for the first month. Every night, after spending the day sucking up local color, notebook in hand, tramping up and downtown from the village to Hell's Kitchen, I parked on 27th Street, around the corner from the armory on Lexington, hunkered down under a blanket in the back seat, snug against the fall weather, I went unnoticed by police cruisers circling the armory until dawn. By November, it was too cold for comfort, so I sold the caddy to a Lebanese leather goods importer on Broadway, whom I met at Bowes, where Miss Harry occasionally appeared. With the money from the caddy's sale, I rented a room at a fleabag SRO hotel, the Latham, a few blocks west on 28th, and took my meals, one a day was all I could afford, at the cafe. While I sucked the nutrition out of the hearty blue plate specials at Bo's, politely begging extra bread to stuff in my pockets for later, I surveyed the spread of glossy black and white photos of performers adorning the walls. Nights, after the flower district closed down, the cafe doubled as a showcase for talent. Except for Miss Harry, none of the acts were known to me. It was the era of garage bands and punk venues like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City, and the writer in me was amused by one of the posters announcing the appearance of the nothings, the nobodies, and the nowheres. Applauding the promoter's literary sense of humor and making a bill of alliterated band names touting nihilism, I wondered if it had been accidental. Meanwhile, Miss Harry seductively stared at me from her glossies, a punk Laura Lee luring me into her rock and roll altar. By the time she appeared at the cafe again, I admit that I was a little in love with her. I happened to be having dinner when she breezed in one afternoon to do a sound check for the evening showcase. From my perch in the dining room, I watched her unfold Bo, the ordinarily impersonal owner, in her web of feminine charm, reaching up to pull him into her creamy décolletage, redolent with civet and patchouli, much to his blustery embarrassment. While her surly mohawk-haired roadies hauled in the band's equipment, Bo led her to a table in the dining room near mine, pulled out a chair for her, and cavalierly seated her. They spoke too softly for me to hear what they were saying, but from Bo's high color I could tell that she made him pleasurably uncomfortable. Her amago as Blondie was yet to come, but she already displayed the cool sexual allure that would become her trademark. Bo, an avuncular devotee, was under her spell. 
He waved over a waitress just as she was going off duty, the lunch crowd having gone back to work, and she impatiently recited the specials for Miss Harry. Bo excused himself to glad-hand one of his cronies at the door, a mustachio Pete old-timer everyone called Nate the Skate, who I had come to suspect of running the numbers racket on the floor above. Miss Harry, unable to choose among the specials, leaned across the aisle to me and in a breathy voice asked me what I was having and if it was any good. Baked ziti, I stammered, trying not to appear flummoxed, though it was clear from her coy smile that she knew I was. It's not bad, I said, recovering. I don't bite, you know, she said, flashing me her pearly whites. Though on second thought, maybe I will, she lion leered in her best joysy accent, claws drawn, lips curled, fangs exposed. That got us both laughing. Reaching across the aisle, she held out her hand for me to shake. Deborah. Deborah Harry. No shit, I told myself. Infused with a reckless grace I hadn't known I possessed, I rose and made a theatrical bow and brushed her hand with my lips. She didn't stop me. Rather, it seemed to me she accepted it as homage. Henry. Henry Miller, I lied, taking in vain the name of one of my literary heroes. Right, and I'm Mona June Smith, she said, laughing at her informed allusion to Miller's wife and paramour, the inspiration for his million-word fictive panegyric, The Rosy Crucifixion. It's okay, don't tell me if you don't want to, she said, drawing her hand back, all the while keeping eye contact. Hers were jade, I noticed, cool and appraising with a hint of vulnerability. Toby, uh... Tobias Moore, I offered. Author, from Boston. Me, Chanteuse, from Joyzy, Debbie called, pointing to herself. What have you written, Tobias Moore? Anything I might have heard of? Working on a first novel. Aren't we all? She cooed just as Bo arrived, looking me up and down. Though we'd never spoken, I knew he recognized me as one of the regulars with pinched means. I never ordered more than the special with tap water. Forbearance wearing thin, he waited for me to go back to my ziti. After that, Debbie and I became friends, bonding over our mutual admiration for Henry Miller and Anais Nin and the passion that launched their art. She confessed she was looking for a similar liaison, making me hope that I might fulfill that position as her lyricist. But soon after, she took up with Chris Stein, and the rest is history. We stayed friends even when she became famous in Blondie, she liked my proper Bostonian manners and pretentious vocabulary, treating me like a kid brother. She supported my dreams, grand, like hers. Invited to the recording studio to watch the band lay down the tracks to Heart of Glass, I flattered myself thinking that I was the inspiration for the song, about saving Debbie from a stalker. Later, she tried to help my career, introducing me to a flamboyant theater director from the village, Anthony Belarusso. But that backfired when he destroyed my manuscripts out of spite after I refused him sex. Not my cup of tea, but Debbie was. Only two years older than me, she was a punk rock Eve from the Burbs, born knowing the ways of the world. Meanwhile, I had yet to experience my downgoing, my immersion in the blood of the Lamb.